Good morning. Glad to see you guys. When I was a youth pastor back in Florida, I had this kid in my youth group that came to me one time and he said, hey, Dan, I have really tried to read the Bible and make sense out of it. I've given it my best shot, but like, I don't know. Maybe I'm just not wired right. I cannot read it. There are too many like places and names I can't pronounce. There are too many characters and like plot lines. It's just too big. I don't think anybody can make sense out of it. And I said, hey, listen, man, I understand how you feel. Most people kind of had that same sense the first little bit when they approach the scriptures. But keep at it, okay? Don't give up. I promise if you keep engaging and reading the scriptures little bit by little bit, things will start to click for you. Fast forward a couple of weeks later, and the third Lord of the Rings movie has come out. So I see this kid huddled with his friends over in the back corner of the youth room, and you gotta know these are the kind of kids that really get into the Lord of the Rings, right? And so I'm kind of keeping an eye on what they're doing back there, make sure they're not selling drugs or whatever. It's the life of a youth pastor. And so anyway, um, I'm listening and I hear this kid, okay? And no lie, he's saying to this group of guys that's gathered around him, well, you have to realize what happened between Theoden and Denethor. And that's the reason that they almost lost the battle against the Dark Lord Sauron at the Battle of Minas Tirith. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. You can recite from memory, the fictional histories of Middle Earth, but you don't think you can understand the Bible? Come on, man. You totally can. So I gave him a hard time, and he probably still hasn't read the Bible, but I tried. Now, look, he's not the only one, okay? There are many of us in the room, and we could talk for hours about Harry Potter or the Wheel of Time. We could quote thousands of lines from The Office. We can recite the statistics of our favorite NFL quarterback, right? I don't think the problem is that the Bible is too big or that our brains are too small. I think the problem is much of the time, many of us approach the scripture with wrong perspectives or assumptions that confuse the text and make it more difficult to read than it really needs to be. And so what we've been doing over the last several weeks this is the final week of this series. We've been talking about how not to read the Bible. You probably come to church a lot and you think they're gonna teach you how to read the Bible. What we're trying to do is teach you how not to read the Bible. We're exposing some of the false perspectives or assumptions that even Christians have when they approach the scripture. And if you read the Bible with these wrong ideas in your mind, it will create all kinds of frustration and confusion for you. In fact, it's part of the reason that many people start reading the scripture and then put it down forever because they've approached it through the wrong lens. So what I want to do is help give you a little bit of a corrective lens, so to speak, so that you can uh, really read the Bible for all it's worth. Now, you'll remember over the last few weeks, we've said several things. In week one, we told you that the Bible is a library and not a book. And so that's really important. You approach it as a library instead of a single book. If you want to know the implications of that and how it changes the way you read the scripture, go back. You can watch our services on YouTube. We've got an audio podcast on like, you know, Spotify and Apple podcasts, all that stuff. You can catch up on any messages that you might've missed. The Bible is a library, not a book. We said in week two, the Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. We're going to kind of circle around that idea a little bit more this morning. And then last week we said the Bible is a unified story, not a collection of random verses. It's not just a, a bunch of writings that we can cherry pick and pluck out the parts that we like and ignore the parts that we don't like. We have to take this entire story as a unified whole so that we understand what it is that uh, God wants to communicate through it. So today, what I want to help you to understand, the final truth on how not to read the Bible, is that I want you to recognize that the Bible tells Jesus' story, not my story. 
The Bible tells the story of Jesus and not the story of Daniel. From the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, the Bible tells the story of the Messiah who came and conquered death, the one who overcame and really rescued and delivered his people. Jesus is the hero of this story, not us. And that is different from the way that most people approach the Bible. Because if I were to ask the average person out on the street, and maybe even many of you that are here this morning, if I said, what is the Bible? You would give me some variation of, well, the Bible is ancient self-help, right? It is spiritualized for sure. But essentially the goal of the Bible is for me to understand how I'm supposed to live in the world, how I can please God with my life, how I can be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. All right. Now, look, I do believe the Bible can teach you some of those things. That is part of what the Bible wants to communicate. But it is not the main reason the scriptures exist. Can I tell you, the Bible does not exist to exalt me and you. It exists to exalt Jesus. Now, if we read the Bible as if we are the main character, as if we are the hero, as if everything that's written on these pages is for us and how we can live the life we want to live, we will be very confused when we start to actually read the stuff that's written in there because we are not meant to be the hero of this story. Jesus is always meant to be the hero. Now, in Luke chapter number 24, we have this amazing illustration of this. In Luke 24, we are on Easter Sunday, like the very first Easter resurrection Sunday. And so uh, Jesus had been put to death on Good Friday. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And on Easter Sunday morning, a group of his um, female followers ran to the tomb and they wanted to see his body, see where he was buried, you know, that sort of thing. And when they get there, whoop, the body's gone. They freak out. They run and go grab some of the other disciples and they're like, he's gone, what's going on? So the other disciples come and now we've got men and women gathered around the tomb and suddenly an angel appears. And the angel says, well, yeah, of course his body's gone. He has risen from the dead. And they're like, wait, what? Wait, wait, wait. This is the first we're hearing of this. And of course the angel's like, no, it is not the first you're hearing of this. He's been trying to tell you guys for three years. Why have you not been paying attention? So they all run back up to this place called the upper room. It's like the uh, loft in a, in a place in Jerusalem. And they're all hanging out and they're trying to make sense. They just cannot, their brains cannot compute that their Messiah was dead and now he's alive, trying to figure it out. Later on, Sunday evening, Luke 24, we read this story of two disciples who are walking on a road from Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus. And as they're walking along, they're talking about everything that's going on and like, whoa, his body's really gone. Could it be that he's risen from the dead? Did somebody steal the body? What is all this? And suddenly a stranger starts walking next to them. And they're like, whoa, bro, where'd you come from? You know, at least announce yourself. Now here's the thing. The Bible tells us in Luke 24 that this is Jesus but they don't recognize that it's Jesus. They don't recognize him in his resurrection form. And specifically, the scripture actually tells us that God clouds their vision. He prevents them from recognizing Jesus because he's actually gonna like do some, something really cool here in just a moment. There's a reason for God playing this little prank on them, all right? So they don't know it's Jesus. They're walking along and this stranger is like, so what's up, fellas? What's going on today? Any, any big news happening? What's new with y'all? And they're like, uh, are you the only person in Jerusalem that does not know what's happening right now? And he's like, no, tell me more. And so they say, well, we've been followers of this rabbi, this Messiah named Jesus for years. And he's done all these miracles. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. He's taught things that nobody's ever taught before. He blew our minds. We devoted our entire lives to following him. And then last week they arrested him. They killed him and we buried him. Then today 
somehow his body's missing. We don't know what that's all about. Some people are saying he's risen from the dead, but how does that even happen? Now notice they're telling Jesus his own story here. And he's like, oh, really fascinating. That's so interesting, you know? So after they tell this whole story, we read in verse number 25, Jesus said to them, you foolish people, like you knuckleheads, I love you guys so much. I have been trying to communicate this stuff to you for years. It's wild that you guys are still not getting it. You foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all of these things before entering his glory? Then verse 27 is really important. It says, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All right, now if Jesus approached the Bible the way most people approach the Bible, he would have used some of the Old Testament scriptures to give them a little pep talk. You know what I'm saying? He's like, disciples, I know it's tough, but listen, here's a verse that'll help you when life doesn't go the way you think it should go. This will help you to have the encouragement to keep going when it doesn't make sense and God feels far and here you go, right? He would have said something like, do you know that you guys are a part of a story that's still being written and you're gonna be like the heroes in the story 2,000 years from now, on the other side of the planet, in this country called Canada, they're gonna be talking about you guys on Sunday morning. How cool is this, right? If Jesus approached the Bible the way that you and I approached the Bible, he would have used the scripture to tell these two disciples about themselves, <laughs> to explain to them how good life is going to be for them if they just keep following God, as if they were the reason the story existed, as if they were the heroes of the story that's being told. But that is not the way that Jesus uses scripture. And it's not the way we should use the scripture either. Instead, the Bible tells us here that beginning with the writings of Moses, that's a way of referring to the first five books of the Bible, also called the Torah, right? So he starts with the first five books and then he moves on through all the prophets. That's a shorthand way of referring to the other 34 books in the Old Testament. That's all they had. This like the New Testament hadn't even been written yet. So Jesus is taking them through the major parts of the Old Testament and showing how even in the Old Testament, he's there. See, we don't think about Jesus being in the Old Testament because Jesus came in the New Testament, right? But if you pay close attention, you know what? You will find Jesus all over the place in the Old Testament. He is there. Now, his name might not be mentioned, but he shows up. He's promised. He's referenced. He's prophesied about. And literally, sometimes he actually pops into the story. It's really, really wild. And so Jesus uses the scripture, not to teach these guys how they can have the best life possible and not how they can be happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise, but instead he uses the Bible to show them the grand story that God has been writing since the very beginning. He places himself at the center of the Bible. And you and I should do the exact same thing, at least if we wanna understand the, way, uh, the Bible the way that Jesus understands the Bible. Now, in Luke 24, we read that this road that they're walking to Emmaus is... Uh, seven miles long. So it would have taken about two, two and a half hours for them to walk this journey. Now, I have a hard time imagining somebody starting in Genesis and going all the way through the Old Testament to Malachi in about two hours and explaining everything about Jesus. But I guess he was the master teacher. If anybody could do it, it was probably him. I am not the master teacher. I don't have two and a half hours this morning, amen. And so I'm not gonna be able to show you all of those things. But what I might be able to do 
is I might be able to give you a 30,000 foot view of the story that's being told in the Bible and how from the very beginning all the way through to the very end, it is a singular unified story about Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior who came to rescue us when we weren't able to rescue ourselves. So I'm going to put a chart on the screen. The chart is obnoxious. I'm not going to lie. Christians are so good at making obnoxious charts. You ever notice this? You ever seen an end times chart? Man, it'll make your brain explode. You understand an end times chart? You are qualified for medical school. I'm telling you, if you can read that, you can read anatomy textbooks. So I, would, I did the Christian thing. I put a crazy chart on the screen. It's okay if you're too far away or you can't quite read it. We're going to walk through it, and we're going to ignore most of it. All right. So basically, the Bible is divided into six sections, or there are six movements or acts that occur in the Scripture. And what's really interesting is that not all of these acts are the same length. In fact, some of them are only a chapter long. Some of the most important are only a chapter long. And then there are like, some acts or sections that are hundreds of chapters long. So the, the import of that particular movement in the scripture is not defined by how much writing there is, and we'll kind of see that. So on the far left-hand side of the screen, you have the early books of the Bible. It starts with Genesis. And as you make your way across to the right, you move later in the Bible until at the very end, you end up in Revelation 22. Six major acts. This is really everything that you would need to know to kind of have a concept of what's taught in the scripture. So it starts in uh, movement number one, when, in which God creates humanity and we live in paradise. You guys, we had it so good. Oh my goodness. Like it was never freezing cold. It was never too hot. There were no hurricanes. There was no evil and hatred and gossip. There was no like, I mean, nothing. I was gonna say TikTok, but I'm not trying to pick on anybody. There was just like nothing bad in the world. You know what I mean? It was awesome. It was so good. And God said, you can enjoy all of this. You got one rule, be fruitful and multiply. No, you got two rules, actually. The second rule is don't eat of this one particular tree. It's the only thing that's off limits. I'm a, I don't know if God put a picket fence around, a barbed wire fence, I don't know. But he said, the one thing you cannot do is eat from this tree. That's it. And if Adam and Eve would have obeyed, then we would have stayed there in paradise forever. But they didn't. And before we give them too hard of a time, do you realize like if I was there in the garden, I would have done the same thing. You would have done the exact same thing. So God gives us this really wonderful, perfect, intimate and innocent existence with him. But because we can't follow rules, <laughs> the Bible teaches that we rebel. We choose to break the singular command that God gave us. We were real good about that be fruitful and multiply command, but we were not good about staying away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we fall. There is a break, a separation that happens between us and God. And what's fascinating here is that God steps in, in the middle of our worst moment. And he says, you guys, you done goofed. But instead of saying, you're on your own from now on, he says, this isn't going to be permanent. And he makes this prediction, this prophecy, this promise. And he says, there is going to be a person who comes, a Messiah, a savior, an anointed one, who is going to be the seed of a woman, which is a real weird thing to say because women don't really have seed, men do, but we don't want to talk about that. When in Old Testament times, we have lineage, like the birth order and birthright, that would come down always through the father's side, always. So when God steps in and he says, there's going to be the seed of a woman, that's like something that's supposed to be like, wait, what, what, red flag, what does that mean, right? And he says, this seed of the woman is going to undo all the mess that you guys have created. And in fact, he is going to crush the head of the serpent. He is going to finally and fully 
destroy evil. That's the promise that's made here at the fall. So the rest of Act 3 is basically people trying to work out what it means to live with God while you're waiting on the promise. And so God, he finds this one random dude named Abraham and he's like, hey, Abe. And he's like, yeah, is that you, God? And he's like, yeah, it's me. Tell you what, I wanna have a special relationship with you. You're gonna be my people. And in fact, your whole family is gonna grow and multiply. You're gonna be special because this promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one that I mentioned way back in Genesis, he is going, or in the early parts of Genesis, he's gonna come through your family line. And Abraham's like, oh, cool, I like this, this is good. It doesn't turn out so good for Abraham because God says, all right, here's what we're gonna do. You and I are gonna enter into an agreement. And the agreement is, I'm gonna give you a bunch of rules and you're gonna follow the rules. And if you follow the rules, I'm gonna bless you. And if you don't follow the rules, you're in trouble. Well, as you can imagine, Abraham and his people have trouble following the rules because we have trouble following the rules in the garden. We still have trouble following the rules today. So it shouldn't surprise us that they had trouble following the rules as well. So this whole section of the Old Testament, can you believe this? Genesis 3, all the way through Malachi, like the end of the Old Testament is literally about God's chosen family trying to figure out how do we follow God when we keep screwing up? How do we have a relationship with God when we cannot keep the rules that he gives us? Eventually, God's like, oh my gosh, you guys are just making it worse and worse and worse. Tell you what, it's time for that seed of the woman. It's time for the Messiah to come. And so in in movement four, we see redemption is provided through the birth of Jesus. And remember that prophecy about the seed of a woman? Well, what do you know? Jesus comes and he's born of a virgin named Mary. That prophecy was made back in the day and now it's being fulfilled thousands of years later. The Bible says that Jesus lives a perfect life. He never did anything wrong. He never talked smack to anybody else. He never stole anything. He never broke any of God's law. He did what you and I could not do. Literally a perfect life. And people hated him so much for it that they killed him. Now you're like, man, what kind of evil person you gotta be to kill Jesus, seriously. But listen, just like with Adam and Eve, if you and I were there, we probably would have done the exact same thing. I probably would have been in the crowd on, you know, Good Friday, crucify him, crucify him, right? Probably. Okay. So Jesus is killed. He's placed in a grave and then he rises from the dead. And that forms the the end of act four or movement number four. And from that point on, God says, all right, now in the past, Only people who were ethnically Jewish, only people who were born to the family of Abraham could have a relationship with God. But now because of Jesus, because of his victory over death, because of the grace of God shown through Christ, everybody on the planet can have an equal relationship with God. No matter what your nationality is, no matter what your language is, no matter your gender, no matter your age, no matter your socioeconomic status, everybody can have a relationship with Jesus. And so... The church is supposed to go tell people that because it's real good news, you guys. That is movement number five. And you know what? That's where you and I are today. We're actually in this timeline right there. We are the church marching forward with the kingdom of God. And then in act number six, we're gonna see the return of Christ and we're gonna see God redeem and reconcile everything. Now, here's what I find so fascinating. 
We think that when heaven comes or we get to heaven, it's going to be some disembodied thing floating off in the clouds somewhere. We're all going to be playing harps with halos on our head. That is not what Revelation 22 says. Revelation 22 says when God creates heaven, he is going to recreate the paradise that we lost in Genesis 1 and 2. But this time, we won't even have the capacity to screw it up. People are always like, well, why did God give Adam and Eve the potential to even mess up? Well, next time he's not going to, okay? So check this out. Start to finish, it's a story about the Messiah, the Savior, the one who comes to save us and to undo our mistakes, the mistakes we have made, the mistakes that we continue to make, and the mistakes that people will make long into the future. Jesus is the hero of this story. It is not about me. It is ultimately and fully about him. When you read the Bible with that perspective, my friends, it changes what you see in there because it's no longer just a tool to my end. God doesn't exist to fulfill my plans and desires on earth, but instead I start to see myself as a part of a much bigger and better story. My glory is too small to live for. Listen, if I get a six-figure income, if I get to have the family and wife and kids and all that that I always dreamed of, if I get the promotion, if I get famous on TikTok, it doesn't matter. None of it is gonna matter. They're gonna forget me in like 30 years after I'm dead. Nothing is going to outlast us. And so God offers us a story that actually has eternal significance. God allows us to live out something that will truly, finally, fully matter. But in order to see that, you have to see Jesus is the hero. Step out of the spotlight, shine the spotlight on him. So the scripture does. It's what you and I are called to do with our lives every single day. Now, uh, I told you a moment ago, when you read the Bible this way, it really changes how you see things. The best example of this is 1 Samuel chapter number 17. The most famous story in the Bible, probably, at least the Old Testament, the story of David and Goliath. Even if you're not a religious person, you're familiar with the story of David and Goliath. Let me walk you through it. We're not gonna read it. Let me just walk you through it real quick. And you'll see how the right perspective totally changes what you see in this story. So the year is about 1020 BC. This is like 3,000 years ago from today. It was 1,000 years before Jesus ever comes on the scene. There's this little boy named David, and he's working on his family farm. And one day his dad says to him, David, I want you to go to the front lines of the battle, not to go fight as a soldier, because David was too young and he was too small to be a warrior. But all of his older brothers were actually out there as soldiers fighting in this war. And so he says, I want you to go take these cookies from mama, go check on your brothers, let them know we love them, make sure they ain't dead yet. Just, just go look after them, okay? Check on them and see if everything's cool. So David marches up there to the battlefield. And once he gets there, he finds out that the Israelite army, that's his nation, is in this battle against the Philistines, the enemy army, and they've kind of come to a stalemate. And the Israelites are camped on this side, a ridge of a narrow valley. And on the other side of the valley, we've got the Philistines that are camped here. And nobody is making the first move. And the reason nobody's making the first move is not because they're like playing a game of chicken or anything like that. Think about it like this. If you've got a valley and you're on either side, if you charge first at the enemy, you know what you've done? You've given up the high ground. So suddenly the ones who stayed on the ridge, they'll just like start shooting arrows and throwing rocks and you have really put yourself at a tactical disadvantage. Both armies know that, so nobody wants to do anything about it. All right, every day, there is a single soldier from the Philistine army. He puts on his gear, 
He grabs his weapons. He walks down the valley side. He stands down and he shouts up at the Israelites. And he says, let's go. I challenge any one of you guys in solo combat. Send out your best. I will take them down. And whoever wins this fight is gonna win the war on behalf of their army. His name was Goliath. The Bible says that he was nine feet tall, which is crazy, but we actually have records of modern people being like eight feet, 10 inches tall. So like, it's totally possible. So he's nine feet tall. The Bible says he wears iron armor that weighs 125 pounds. I don't even think I can lift 125 pounds. That was just his armor, right? Then he's got like a giant spear and he's got a huge sword. He was the equivalent of a battle tank. So he's down there every day taunting the Israelites. Somebody come fight me. Somebody, let's go. I will fight you right now to the death. How many Israelites do you think volunteered? Zero. They're all quaking on the sides. They're afraid. They're frozen in fear. They all know there is no way that they are going to win in solo combat against Goliath. And so every day he's out there taunting them and nobody is responding. Well, David He's incensed at this. Like he is totally ticked off. He's like, how dare you all let this man taunt us and mock our God. If y'all ain't gonna get off the sidelines, I'll go down there and fight him myself. Keep in mind, this fool was 13 years old. He was a little boy. You know what I mean? Barely armpit hair at this point. And he's like, I'll go down there and I will fight this soldier, this champion, this man of war from his youth. Everybody who hears him volunteer to go fight starts laughing until they realize he's serious. And then his brothers are like, shut up, go home. You don't even have your big boy pants yet. You're too little. This is not your fight. You're not a soldier. Go look after the sheep. He says, I don't care what you guys say. I will go down there and fight him. The king shows up and the king's like, hey, I don't think this is a good idea. You probably should not do this. I'm not going to stop you. I mean, I'm the king. I could, but I'm not gonna because it'll make for a good scene at least. I'll tell you what, if you're really set on going down there, I got to do whatever I can to help. So why don't you take my personal armor? King Saul gives David his personal armor. This was the best protection that money could buy. So David puts on the king's armor. The problem is he's 13 years old. He's never been a soldier. It doesn't fit right. He can't move in it. This is like, you know, your little kid putting on daddy's suit coat. It just, just, just draped on him, you know? And so he says, I can't fight in this. He takes off the armor. He makes his way down the valley side wearing nothing but a tunic and sandals. Along the way, there's a creek running down their side of the valley. He stops and the Bible says he picks up five smooth river stones. And as he marches towards Goliath, the only weapon he's carrying in his hand is a sling, the ancient version of a slingshot. Now, you got to understand, like a sling could be a dangerous thing. You know what I'm saying? You chuck a rock at somebody, like, yeah, it might hurt a little bit. But the sling was no match for Goliath's weapons and armor. The sling is what you use to chase off wolves on the farm. This was not a weapon of war. And yet, that's what he brings. So David gets down to the valley floor and he's got this incredible line. You know, like there are certain things that you read quotes that people give and it just gets you hyped. You hear it and you're like, oh yeah, I'll go to battle here and that. David gets on the valley floor and Goliath starts laughing at him because he's a 13 year old boy. And David says, you come at me with a sword and a spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord, our God. And the battle commences. I'm just, I'm just telling you, like, I, personally, I'm like, I'll go fight him now. All right. Goliath charges. Before he takes two steps, David's already grabbed a, ro- grabbed a stone, a rock. He's loaded his sling. He swung it over his head, and he lets the rock fly. The Bible tells us that the rock flies with such force that it hits, it hits Goliath in the head. 
It makes this wild sound. It hits him, it hits him in the head with such force that it actually sinks into his skull and the rock lodges in the giant's brain. He's dead before he hits the ground. But David ain't done. He runs over to this corpse on the ground now. He pulls out Goliath's sword from his scabbard. He chops off the giant's head. He holds it up and he's like, for Israel, you know. All of the other Israelites, the ones who have been scared on the sidelines, suddenly they're so hyped by what they see. They spill over the valley side. They chase the Philistines. They totally defeat them in battle. Whoa, you guys. No wonder that's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Like, that's incredible. Oh, people need to be making movies about that. Like, that's a really good one, right? Now, if I were to ask you this morning, what is the meaning of this story of David and Goliath? What's the, what's the meaning? What are you supposed to take away when you read the story of David and Goliath? Nearly all of us are going to say the same thing. We're going to say, oh, the story of David and Goliath is the ultimate underdog story. It's the story about how, like, if you are brave and courageous when nobody else is, if you will think creatively and outside of the box, if you'll do what nobody else will do, you can win against seemingly impossible circumstances. Or you might spiritualize it a little bit and you might say, well, the meaning of the story of David and Goliath is when you're fighting for what's right, you will always win. When God is on your side, everything's going to turn out okay. In order to read the story that way, in order to come to that conclusion of what the story of David and Goliath means, you know what we have to do? We have to put ourselves in the shoes of David. This is what we do. We read the story and I'm like, oh, if I'm anybody in this, I'm not Goliath because I'm definitely not nine feet tall. Um, If I'm anybody in this story, I'm probably David. Like I'm that scrappy little kid. When everybody else was all scared, I'm the one that was willing to step up. I'm the one that had the victory. I'm the one that gets the glory. Yes, I see myself as David. We all do that. You do that too. And what that means is if we start to put ourselves in the shoes of David, then we have to start to define the rest of the story according to our own life circumstances. And so we will start to think to ourselves, oh, I got Goliaths in my life. I got Goliaths. I'm trying to launch this business. That's my Goliath. I got to get it started. I'm not picking on business people. You guys know that. My wife is a small business owner, but let's be real. Oh, I got a cancer diagnosis. That's my Goliath. I've been battling mental health issues for decades. That's my Goliath. And so we will define Goliath from our own perspective. I got my Goliath. You got your Goliath. That's how it works, right? And then we'll say, well, what about those five smooth stones? What's that all about? I guess if I'm going to defeat my Goliath, I need five, small, uh, five smooth stones. One of my smooth stones is going to be a business coach. I'm going to get me a business coach, and then I'm going to succeed. I need to have a good prayer life. I got I to gotta have money. I gotta, these are the stones. These are the things that I'm relying on. We put ourselves in the shoes of the hero, and then we start to define the story as if it were really about us. The problem is the Bible is Jesus' story, not my story. And so what we need to do is not to think about ourselves as the hero, but start to think about the hero being the hero. Ah, so wait a sec now. What if, what if I'm not supposed to see myself as David? What if I'm not the David character in the story? What if I'm actually the soldier that's quaking in his boots on the sideline? What if I'm the one that is frozen in fear and I know deep down inside that no matter how courageous I was, no matter how strong I thought I was, that I couldn't actually win that battle against Goliath. I knew that deep down inside. 
Just like in the David and Goliath story, suddenly an unlikely champion shows up. Somebody who looks like they couldn't possibly win this war. They couldn't win that battle. But he shows up and he gives to all of those people on the sidelines what they could not give to themselves. Ah, now I'm starting to see a pattern here that makes a lot of sense. Maybe I'm on the sidelines and Goliath is like sin and death is evil in the world. It's like my addictions and habits that no matter how hard to try, I cannot beat them. I'm just not equipped. I'm not qualified. And maybe, maybe the point of the story is not that I'm David and God gives me courage. Maybe the point is that Jesus is David and he comes as my champion. He fights my battles. He gives me victory that I could never secure on my own. Maybe, oh, just maybe. These five smooth stones are meant to represent, because these are unlikely weapons, right? Maybe they're meant to represent Jesus' teaching of love for your enemies and sacrificial death. Nobody would expect those to overthrow the ways and weapons of the world, but hello, they do. Ah, see, when we start reading the Bible this way, with Jesus as the hero, the story becomes much richer. It becomes much better because I don't have to succeed. There is one who has already succeeded on my behalf. I don't have to be the one who's always got the answers and the courage and the understanding. There is somebody who is my savior, my champion, my deliverer, who does that on my behalf. That is is the story the Bible tells. And that is the pattern that you will see repeated again and again throughout the scripture if you'll start to read it through that lens. So here's what I want you to do. When you start reading the Bible from now on, particularly Old Testament stories, because this is a little easier in the New Testament, but particularly Old Testament stories, ask yourself, who's the good guy in this story? And know that your initial inclination is going to be to make you the good guy in that story. That's gonna be what you wanna do naturally. But that's actually not what the Bible intends for you to do. Instead, put Jesus in that place. Let him be the hero. Then ask, who's the bad guy? That's probably you. No, that's not the way to read it. Who is the person? Sometimes we are the bad guy, I'm not gonna lie. But who is the person that is being saved or delivered in this story? And that's you. Ah, now listen, if you read it with this lens, asking these questions, you will see this pattern repeat again and again and again and again in the scriptures. Why? Because the whole thing is a story about Jesus the Savior, the champion who comes to give us victory in the battles that we cannot win for ourselves. Do you understand? This is what it really means to be a Christian. This is what the gospel actually is. That you and I are unable to overcome our sin. We are unable to not do stupid, evil, wrong things in the world. And so too many people think that the gospel, the good news, church, Christianity, it's about going to God and saying, God, give me another chance to keep fighting my Goliaths. I need another chance. I'll go round two. I'll go round three. Give me a chance. The problem is Goliath is always going to win against you. You cannot defeat your sin. You cannot defeat the, the bent inside of you away from God and away from what's good. None of us are able to do that. So instead, the gospel is, I don't need a chance. I need a champion. I need somebody to come fight for me, somebody to accomplish what only uh, he can do. I'm not able to. So when we talk about putting our faith in Jesus, it ain't about a fresh start. It's about like a whole new creation. It's about like being completely transformed because of what God has done for you through Christ. So who's the good guy? That's Jesus. 
who's the one that needs to be saved or delivered? Uh, that's me and you. Okay, there's a couple other things that I can um, kind of, some, some things that I hope you'll do. Because this is the end of our series. Uh, we're not gonna be talking about how not to read the Bible anymore. We're gonna be communion next week, which I'm really looking forward to. The week after that, we're starting a series called Relationship Goals. Oh, it's gonna be so good. If you're looking for romance or restarting romance in your life, we got you covered. Um, but this is it. Just because we end a series on the Bible doesn't mean that we stop reading the Bible. The Bible is like the bread of the Christian. We are supposed to be in it daily, feeding our souls. And so I'm gonna challenge you to continue to read a chapter from the Bible every single day. We've been doing this the whole month. We started with, um, what did we start? Thank you, Mark. I don't know why I just had that you know, moment. Mark, and then we've been reading the book of Ephesians. And then uh, we're gonna finish Ephesians in two days. And you know what you're gonna read next? whatever you want, okay? I don't need to keep feeding you Bible. You can choose whatever you wanna read. So here are two suggestions, but we're not all necessarily gonna be doing the same thing. Go read the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is amazing, super easy to read, very easy to apply. Go read the book of Proverbs. Or if you don't wanna do that, you're looking for something else, download the YouVersion Bible app. It's available, Android, uh, iPhone. Probably most of you guys already have that tucked away like on the last part of your phone. When you click on YouVersion, it's gonna need to re-download because you ain't touched it in 30 days, but that's okay, that's okay. They have Bible reading plans. And literally you just open it up and it gives you a small section of scripture to read, a couple of questions to reflect on and boom, you're engaged in the word every single day. So good, so necessary. The other thing is today is group link and I'm very excited about group link. We're starting a whole new semester of connect groups and several of the groups that we have are specifically designed to keep you engaged in the Bible. There's one in particular that I hope you'll consider. It's called how to read the Bible. I've been telling you how not to read the Bible. They're actually gonna teach you how to read the Bible. This is led by Heidi Chamberlain and Chelsea Funk. I know both of them. They are incredible Bible teachers. They're both very, very gifted. You're gonna appreciate what they have to say. And what's cool about their uh, group is that on February 8th, they're doing a, that's a Saturday, they're doing a short seminar right here at the church. It's open to absolutely everybody. It's a couple hours long. They're gonna come and they're gonna talk through the book of Jonah, one of the coolest books in the scripture. And they're gonna show you how to use Bible study principles to get the most out of that text. Then weekly after that, they're gonna be meeting and you guys are gonna go through a different book together and you're gonna to start to implement some of these Bible study tools and stuff. Oh, it's gonna be so good. So I would encourage you, go to connectcalgary.ca slash Bible or meet them right out here and they will get you signed up. All right, I gotta wrap up because I've gone way too long today, but I want you guys to, to really know the best thing, the best thing you can do for your soul and your faith is to read the scripture. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's confusing. Yes, there's stuff in there that's kind of ugly and cringy. It's all there. But you need to read it if you ever expect to mature in your relationship with God.